Uh, we're in chapter 3 now of the second London Confession of Faith, so you can turn to that chapter and we'll read all seven paragraphs and have a look at the doctrine of God's decree. Chapter 3, beginning with paragraph 1. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath any fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his own glory, of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their numbers so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Amen. Well, that's a, uh, that's a very meaty chapter. And um, historically, the stuff of this chapter, of course, um, has endured much debate, much discussion, uh, much deliberation amongst theologians. And, um, you know, to cover every clause and every word and every phrase in this confession would take a very long time. So we're only going to look at uh, a few particular points that this chapter brings out. And the first thing that we want to note is something with respect to the connection between chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity and this chapter of God's decree. Because when we read in chapter 3, paragraph 1, uh, the first sentence, God hath decreed in himself, we need to 
<clears throat> remind ourselves that it's the God of chapter 2. Of course, the confession isn't now just somehow moving to some you know, uh, ambiguous, uh, abstract definition of God, but rather it's the God of chapter 3, Father, Son, or chapter 2, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the one decreeing in himself from all eternity whatsoever comes to pass. And so with regards to God and divine sovereignty, just turn back to chapter 2 for a moment, because when we consider the decree of God, we're of course considering that God is sovereign in his majesty and in his glory. He's not conditioned by or constrained by or contained within any laws or anything outside of himself that somehow dictates how he is supposed to act and that sort of thing, but much rather has unrivaled sovereignty and unmitigated sovereignty over all things. And we can see um, in paragraph 2 at chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2 at paragraph 1, uh, we can see some of the language here. And if you notice, uh, sort of near the middle of the paragraph, we read that God is most wise, most free, most absolute, and then notice working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. So the, the confession here, of course, founded upon biblical revelation, divine revelation, is stating with regards to God that he is most wise, most free, and most absolute. So he isn't conditioned by anything outside of himself. He's most absolute and most free. And of course, the decree of God is founded upon his most perfect wisdom. And then we have this good definition, a good working definition of, uh, of sovereignty, working all things according to the counsel of his most, uh, his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Then if you turn to, to paragraph two for a moment, of chapter 2, we see that God, uh, the, that divine sovereignty, and of course then the decree, is grounded in the fact that God is alone in unto himself all sufficient. Notice the paragraph, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. And then just moving down a little bit, and he hath most, most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. So the doctrine of God and the consideration in that of the doctrine of divine sovereignty is very important foundationally as we consider the decree of God. Just a few places in the Bible that we can turn to that speak to this reality, the, the fact that God... Uh, as we read here, has most sovereign dominion all creatures to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. You can turn to a couple psalms here. The first one is 115. Psalm 115. Uh, a psalm uh, and a, well, a passage here, a verse in this psalm that you, you're very familiar with from uh, the pulpit here, as Pastor Butler alludes to it a lot with regards to divine sovereignty. Notice in Psalm 115, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Uh, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, in 
in the pagan view of divine favor or the favor of the gods that those who rest under divine favor should always uh, endure or uh, obtain blessings. That there should be perhaps no cursings upon those uh, who, uh, who have a God who is about their favor. So the Gentiles might look upon afflicted and persecuted and opposed um, Israel and think, that, you know, think, where is their God? Because there is no blessings being poured out upon them, but rather perhaps cursings and affliction. But the retort comes, or the response comes in verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So whether, whether Israel against the the uh, whether Israel against the Philistines are uh, victorious or whether they're found to be in defeat, nevertheless, it is the case that the God of the armies of Israel is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm one thirty five. Can turn to Psalm one thirty five, and when you get there, verse five. Similar text. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. It's a wonderful statement with regards to divine sovereignty. This language of the Lord our God is above all small g gods, um, that isn't an affirmation of polytheism as if God is just chief among the gods, but rather it's a reference to, reference to most likely the pagan gods. The, the term gods is also used of earthly just, uh, judges that have divine uh, sanction, but it's probably used here with regards to pagan deities our Lord is above all gods. Of course, there are no gods at all, but the difference between the God of heaven and earth and, the, and pagan gods is His unrivaled sovereignty and His mastery over everything. Um, and we see this wonderful language here, our Lord is in heaven, or excuse me, whatever the Lord pleases He does in heaven and in earth, in seas and in all deep places. And this further language of verse 7 just speaks to the unrivaled comprehensive nature of divine sovereignty. It speaks to God's supreme power and His unqualified authority by the simple, uh, by the simple virtue that He is God. So God is most sovereign over all things. One more text and then we'll move on to the decree proper. And you can turn to the book of Daniel for a moment. When we looked at um, Daniel chapter 4, when we looked at Jeremiah 9 a number of, number of weeks ago, um, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, we noted this case with Nebuchadnezzar as a, as a case study in one who uh, gloried in his wisdom, gloried in his riches, and gloried in his might. The end of the story, though, is great because it's also a case study in one who cast that aside after a season and understood and knew God with regards to his unrivaled sovereignty. Notice Daniel 4 at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the twelve months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is, this, uh, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? 
While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now notice this next section here. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At this same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted uh, to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. It's a wonderful transition in this text from one who is all about I, I, and my and who now becomes all about his, his, and his. It's a blessed acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God over all things from one who previously thought that he was the master of his own destiny, that he was the one that brought to himself and his kingdom splendor. It was God who gave, it was God who took away, and it was God who restored. So God is sovereign. He has unrivaled and comprehensive sovereignty over all things. Moving then now to the decree, if we move back to chapter 3, there's a... uh, a great definition, of course, of what God's decree is right at the beginning of the paragraph. We have a definition of the decree of God. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. So that is God's, uh, God's decree, a foreordaining of all things that come to pass freely and unchangeably. There are some key words and key phrases that we want to note here as we seek to understand the decree of God. And the first observation is the statement, God hath decreed in himself. So we've already noted, of course, that this is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God hath decreed in himself. As Mahler says, God actively, immediately, and eternally wills all things. That's something important to acknowledge as we move along. The decree doesn't take place in time. God didn't move from having not decreed to having decreed. That's something that we need to understand. God is eternal. He has eternality. He is atemporal. He is not constrained by time nor a slave to time in any degree. He wasn't once eternal and then became partially temporal or temporal. Um, He wasn't once eternal and became eternally now temporal because that doesn't make any sense. He is, of course, eternal or temporal, not a slave nor constrained by time, but wholly outside of it being God and not creation. 
So we need to understand that God's decree is, or God actively, immediately and eternally wills all things. And it is the act, as we consider just the word God here again for a moment, it is the act of all three persons. It isn't only the Father that decrees, but because their works are inseparable and because they in and of themselves are of one uh, one substance, power, and eternity, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that actively, immediately, and eternally will all things. The decree isn't the decree of the Father. And then, you know, I think sometimes we can, we can simplify and uh, erroneously sort of look, define or, or look at the works of the three persons of the Trinity, kind of like the Father decreed, you know, the Son executes and the Spirit applies. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there are places where we can talk like that. The scriptures themselves use, uh, use terms. We call it appropriations, where certain works are ascribed to different persons of the Trinity. But we must understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one essence, of one substance, power, and eternity. And the decree being, as we'll note in a, in a minute, the decree being identical to the very essence and nature of God, it is the case that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all uh, are, are all involved in, if we can use that language, or uh, all decree actively, immediately, and eternally. So it is, the decree is the act of all three persons. We want to note as well that with regards to the language of hath decreed in himself, that's a very important phrase that God hath decreed in himself. It marks the fact that the decree is one with the divine essence. It is not a thing divided or separate from the divine essence. If that was the case, then the decree would not be eternal. Because it is only the case that God is eternal. So we can't have an eternal decree if the decree is somehow essentially separate from God. The decree is one with the divine essence, not a thing divided or separate from it. Thomas Boston wrote, God's decrees are nothing else but God himself, who is one simple act. Um, and so, I mean, you know, uh, uh, could probably three books could probably be written about what that means and what, what is all entailed in that particular phrase. But it's important to understand that the splendor of the decree is because of the God who decrees. And that splendor of the decree is wrapped up in the fact that it is one with the divine essence. It is eternal. Um, it is unchangeable. Just as God in His essence is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of His perfections, so too the decree of God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There's also language here as we move on with regards to this, just this first phrase, from all eternity. We've already noted that if the decrees of God are not one with the divine essence, then the decrees are not eternal because there is nothing eternal but God. And we need to sort of understand the language, what that means, because the language from all eternity um, and some of the language that we have in the scriptures that we'll look at in a few moments um, it almost, it almost seems to be, even though eternity is used, it almost seems to, to carry with it the weight of time-bound language because the language from is used. Uh, in fact, in the scriptures, we have the language um, from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world, which is a very interesting phrase that we also need to understand because when the Bible talks about before the foundation of the world, it's not saying that the decrees were made by God in a time before 
the foundation of the world, but rather the term before is essentially a negative, uh, a negative word removing time from the entirety of the equation. We can only use time-bound language because we're humans, we're temporal, we are bound by time, we are finite, and so we can only use time-bound language very often to speak of the God who is eternal. So his decree was not made at a point in time. Remember, there wasn't a time where God was without his decree because he is identical with his decree. There wasn't a time where God somehow moved from having not decreed to decreed, but rather it is from all eternity. It is in himself and it is from all eternity. And we'll look at some language here as we, uh, as we get to some passages at the end of some of these observations. Now notice some of the next phraseology used here. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. This is something that is, uh, that is blessed when we consider the decree and the fact that God has decreed all things. And that's what we're looking at here, God and his decree concerning all things, because the language here has not yet moved to the decree that concerns the salvation of the elect. So this is the decree concerning all things. And as we look around the world, as we, as we comprehend, well, as we apprehend, as we apprehend the doctrine of the decree and we understand that God, according to the perfection of his nature and his unrivaled sovereignty, has purposed and decreed all things that come to pass, when we see some of the things that come to pass, um, we can be grieved. We can be afflicted. We can be wearied. Because there are, it isn't the case that it is all... Um, all just, you know, roses and bluebirds and rainbows in this lower world. There's a lot of affliction, disease, sin, transgression. Uh, there is a lot of sadness. Of course, there are good things. But it, we, as we look at the scope of history and the look at the, as we look at the scope of what's going on in our own modern times, it is a blessed comfort above comforts to realize that the decree of God concerning all things flows from his most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Our God is most holy, most wise, and so his decrees are most holy and most wise. And so when we reflect upon that fact, we ought to, as we get to the end of the, uh, when we get to paragraph seven here, the consideration of the fact that this doctrine affords matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. Because not confined only to this, it flows from his wisdom and his holy counsel. One of the things, of course, we need to understand here is that God is, of course, not depending upon others' wisdom and upon the will of others. He's not somehow constrained by human wisdom and human will. Um, you know, the you know, uh, Arminian theology, Socinian theology, any any sort of you know theology against the reformed and historical uh, reformed understanding of the decree of God. Uh, to one degree or another wrestles in man's will and man's power in the matter of the decree of God and, of course, the decree concerning salvation. Historically, the Arminians and the Socinians, and uh, by virtue of that, the inheritors of those erroneous theologies in our own day, um, some of them believe that God hasn't decreed all things, that God has only decreed some things. 
um, that, you know, particularly those things pertaining to salvation, and only then based upon his foreknowledge of man's so-called free will decision to choose for Jesus. And so when we come to this reality, the most holy and most wise counsel of the divine will, we're understanding that God is, of course, in no way constrained by anything outside of himself to decree this or to decree that or to not decree this and not decree that. So the decree, uh, again, uh, completely uh, unmitigated by anything, unrestricted by anything, flows from divine wisdom and divine holiness and the exclusive, uh, the exclusive matter of the divine will. <clears throat> um, oh, I just want to read something from Turretin here. It's a good quote regarding uh, this topic, the decree of God and what is ascribed to God concerning the decree uh, relative to this most holy and most wise counsel. The decree is ascribed to God not in as much as it is the effect of pre previous deliberation and consultation with reasoning passing from one thing to another, but by reason of the certain determination concerning the futurition of things. That just simply means the, the matter of things future, the state of future things. The reason of the certain determination concerning the futurition of things, according to which he does nothing rashly, but designedly, that is, knowingly and willingly. So when we think of this, this language of the counsel of his own will, and when we consider the fact that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in the decree of God, we're not to vainly imagine some heavenly counsel where the Father, Son, and Spirit are actually sort of beginning this process of deliberation and speaking to one another. I, I think poetically speaking, uh, poetically speaking and reflecting upon it, some theologians have, and it's okay to do this, sort of poetically represented this divine counsel um, in the language of men with the Father, Son, and Spirit deliberating one with the other. But when we want precision of theology, we must understand that that's not actually what obtains in eternity. You know, the Father, Son, and Spirit, you know, sitting down in the, in the divine courts and, and sort of debating and deciding things and choosing what's going to happen. That's not what we look at when we consider the counsel of his own will. Again, our human language is constrained by just that, human and finite language. So when we talk about uh, a covenant, when we talk about deliberation, when we talk about the counsel of his own will, we're not to import human understandings of what it means to sit around and talk about things and then therefore issue a decree. From the counsel of his own will, as Turretin says here, it's not by virtue of reasoning passing from one thing to another, but by reason of certain de determination. He does nothing rashly, but designedly, that is, knowingly and willingly. So God decrees by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. And then the next statement here we must see here is, uh, is freely and unchangeably. See, the... the the framers of the confession here are not just, you know, throwing in adverbs and adjectives and, and phrases just to, 
you know, just for the sake of doing so. They're very deliberate in the words and the phrases and the clauses that they're using, not only positively to reflect biblical truth, but also negatively to oppose historical and contemporaneous error um, and inoculate the people of God against such error. And so this statement, freely and unchangeably, no doubt positively asserts the blessed sovereignty of God um, and also negatively that he is not bound by anything outside of himself to decree according to anything except the perfection of his own nature. So again, when God, when God as we get to next, God concerning uh, God and his decree concerning the salvation of the elect, uh, we would want to note, we will note, that God doesn't look down the tunnel of time, as it said, to see who would, upon certain conditions, choose for Jesus and then issue a decree of election based upon the free will choice of men. Remember, he freely and unchangeably decrees all things. So he is not bound by the will of man and the power of man. He is, in fact, not bound by anything because he is. He is God the perfection of the divine being. Um, so uh, just some texts here. That, well, actually, the one, one other phrase that we, we see here is the phrase, and this is, there's a lot wrapped up in this historically and biblically. He decrees whatsoever comes to pass. So God decrees all things, not limited things, not just some things, but he decrees all things. And there's some theologians that, that wax very, you know, very poetic on, on this particular point with regards to just the extensive and comprehensive nature of the decree of God decreeing all things. For example, I think it's Renahan in his, uh, James Renahan in his uh, book on the, the confession talks about leaves falling. Um, and he says, he says that God just doesn't decree the simple fact that some leaves will fall from a tree leaving the smaller things to something outside of his comprehensive decree. But the very motion of a, of a leaf as it falls from the tree and it's you know, captured in the wind and it, its, its form responds to gravity as it falls. The very, the very atoms that make up that leaf and how, they're inter, how they're, their interaction and their interplay and the dynamic of the, dynamic of the uh, atomic structure of the leaf, where they land, how they decay, all of these things, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows, he knows what the, he has decreed what the sparrow will do, where it will fly, how it will fly, what it will eat. Every, God decrees everything, not just the big things, but the little things that comprise and make up those big things. So God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And some of the texts that we can read here, we'll, st we'll start at uh, Isaiah 46. You can turn to Isaiah. 46, and we notice there at verse 10 a statement concerning. Well, actually, we're, we're going to back up a little bit there. We'll uh, start reading at verse 8. So, uh, Isaiah 46 and verse 8. Stuck. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. 
You see there the, the blessed clarity that we have from Holy Scripture, and this is God speaking, God Himself declaring the, the perfection of His sovereignty and the fact that He is the one who decrees all things that come to pass. Notice there's this, there's this statement, first off, with regards to divine exclusivity. God is declaring that He is the one and only living and true God. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then this, this statement concerning the fact that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. And then the, the, the fact that God's decrees are fixed. They are unchangeable, just like the divine essence is unchangeable. So too the decrees are, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. John Gill on this passage, The purposes and decrees of God which are within himself, wisely formed by him, eternal and not frustrable, that just means can't be frustrated or, or stopped, and which shall stand or be accomplished, being the counsels of him who is all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchangeable, true, and faithful. Whether they respect the providence of God in relation to the world in general and the government of it, or to particular persons in their affairs from the time of their birth to their death, or whether they respect His grace and goodness in the salvation of men, such as His purpose according to election, the covenant of His grace, redemption by Christ, the effectual calling, and eternal glorification, all which, as they are according to the will and counsel of God, stand firm and sure and shall have their full accomplishment." One other text before we move on to the decree of God concerning the salvation of sinners. Let's just move to uh, Ephesians. And we'll spend a little bit of time there as we move to the next particular head. But in Ephesians chapter 1, there is a lot there concerning the special decree concerning salvation. But there's also a statement in there regarding the decree of all things. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, at verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So only, only touching here upon two verses regarding this fact, we should observe that the Bible speaks a lot more to this. Um, but as we don't have 25 hours, we only have 55 minutes, um, we appreciate the fact of the Bible's clarity regarding God's decreeing of all things. So God and His decree concerning all things, now moving to God and His decree concerning the salvation of the elect. And you can grab your confession of faith again. And we'll notice here, beginning with paragraph 3, uh, we'll read, um, uh, I'm going to read 3, 4, 5, and 6 again, just, just to, to get our minds back to the special decree concerning the salvation of the elect. So, beginning in paragraph 3 here, by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, through Jesus Christ, will be 
sort of important in a moment, to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of His glorious justice. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause, moving him thereunto. Hopefully that particular phrase um, you recognize as we've been discussing the fact that God is not constrained by men, when he decrees, he's not constrained uh, by somehow viewing the, uh, the, the decisions of men in the future based upon certain conditions, uh, but rather we have this truth without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. So the works of man, uh, the, the future works of man, the deeds of man, the future faith of man, the future act of believing, these things aren't conditions by which God decrees the salvation of sinners. Paragraph 6, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so, hath he, uh, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. We'll stop there for a moment. And under God and his decree concerning the salvation of the elect, we want to note first off that God has decreed the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to paragraph 3 for a moment, there's an interesting statement here. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life. So there's this statement regarding men and angels um, and eternal life. And then this clause that was added by the Baptists, it's not in the Westminster and it's not in the Savoy, through Jesus Christ. So obviously we appreciate and we know and we glory in the truth that some men are predestinated and foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. But there's this statement concerning angels. And it's curious because in the scriptures, in the book of Hebrews, for example, we have this statement, this declaration regarding the incarnation of Jesus Christ for the purpose of being the mediator of God's elect. And it says that he did not take on the nature of angels, but he took on the nature of the sons of Abraham. God, uh, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to live and to die and to rise again for the sins of angels because the reprobate angels are unsavable and the elect angels haven't nor will they sin. So it's an interesting statement and it's, uh, it's included there. Uh, you can read James Renahan on it or you can listen to a... Uh, uh, a lecture given by, by Dr. Richard Barcelos a number of years ago on this very phrase and paragraph. Um, but there is a, a fellow contemporaneous to, the, uh, this, the, to this particular time before this was penned named Thomas Collier, um, who I believe was preaching and teaching that Jesus Christ died for, shed his blood for angels. Um, and this statement uh, is included in here against Collier, but also to promote the biblical, uh, the biblical truth that in some way angels, the elect angels, those who never sin, are the blessed beneficiaries of the work of Christ, but in a separate way. 
And that particular way is simply that they are confirmed in their holiness or confirmed in their security as the elect angels. So getting back then to, with that, that sort of aside, if you're more curious about that, I can uh, give you some resources. But we have the blessed truth that God has decreed the salvation of sinners, His elect, through Jesus Christ. Ephesians, uh, if you're still in Ephesians, you can go back to paragraph, uh, to, to chapter 1. And we note this blessed truth, God decreeing the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. Notice, connected to the decree of God, and specifically as it relates to the salvation of the elect. Notice beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then this language, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have this wonderful blessing, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the blessing that is being brought out here is this decree this predestination this election just as he chose us in him and there's that language again before the foundation of the world again when we see that phrase we're not to think time we're not to think temporality we're not to think god moving from having not decreed to having now decreed but that language of before simply removes time away and puts us in the place of the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world that is in all eternity but this blessed truth that God, according to His most holy and wise counsel, according to the free and unchangeable love that is simply the divine essence itself, we have the fact that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What, what a blessed thing. You can turn with me to the book of Romans as Paul in Romans brings forth this truth as well. The same truth that he wrote to the church in Ephesus we have in Romans 8. Romans 8 is so rich with the blessings that we have in Christ according to, the, uh, according to the will of God. And we have this paragraph in uh, beginning at verse 28 that speaks to foreordination, the decree, uh, predestination, the will of God in the salvation of sinners. So Romans 8 beginning at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We have this language, uh, uh, and, and it, brings, it brings together a lot of the things that we've been speaking about this morning. We have the purpose of God who are called according to His purpose. So God in His decree, of course, is marked by divine purpose. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of His perfections, so therefore He is perfect in purpose. And according to His purpose, He has foreknown and He has predestinated a certain and a large and an innumerable group of people 
to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined are also the blessed beneficiaries of all of those spiritual blessings wrapped up with the decree as the foundation. And what I mean is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Or um, the calling, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Of course, that includes all other uh, blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, adoption, sanctification, uh, faith, and repentance. So God has decreed the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ. And that is the, uh, the ground of our praise as we reflect upon salvation. Not that we first love God, but that God loved us first in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In time and in history, Jesus Christ came to effect that salvation for the elect. And in time and in history, the Holy Spirit applied the blessings of, uh, of Christ's redemption to his people, calling them forth from darkness, justifying, adopting, uh, giving them faith and repentance, uh, not particularly in that order, but uh, giving them all of the blessings, uh, all of the blessings wrapped up in Christ's perfect redeeming work. Um, we also note, before we move on a little bit more to, uh, to um, the glory of God in the decree concerning the elect, we also know that the confession, uh, the confession speaks to only very briefly that God has decreed the damnation of the reprobate. Uh, the clause here, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Uh, if you're still in Romans, you can turn to Romans 9 for a moment. When we read in this paragraph the manifestation of His glory, the praise of His glorious grace, and the praise of His glorious justice, that isn't the confessionalists just using terms not used in Scripture, though using terms not used in Scripture is wholesome uh, when properly exercised, but they're pulling phraseology from the Scriptures to speak about these two truths. Ephesians is one of them, and here in Romans 9, uh, 22 and 23, we have some of the same things. Now notice the language here in Romans 9, beginning at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." So the decree of God concerns two things, according to Paul and Romans here. It is making from, uh, you know, making from the clay one pot or pots beforehand uh, determined for destruction, and then from that same clay pots beforehand determined for mercy and glory. And so the confession here, though very concisely, is speaking concerning the decreeing of salvation and also the decreeing of damnation. Now thirdly, God has decreed all the means whereby the elect come to glory. So not only has God decreed the fact that the elect uh, decreed the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ, but he has also decreed, of course, the means whereby they come to faith in Christ. Uh, and that's what the confession is saying here in paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, 
by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. So God decrees the salvation of the elect, and of course, because God's decree is exhaustive and comprehensive, he also decrees those means whereby they come to glory. So the first thing we want to note there, we only have uh, nine and a half minutes remaining, so we'll try to get through this. The first thing we want to note here is the work of Christ in history. God has decreed all the means whereby the elect come to glory, and so the first thing is the work of Christ in history. Uh, And you can turn to Acts 2.23 with me, because there we have the fact that the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ is according to the decree of God. So in Acts chapter 2, notice at verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now note, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Um, That particular passage speaks to what we're talking about here, the work of Christ in history being the means by which God decreed the salvation of the elect, uh, or that means whereby the the decree of election comes, uh, comes to pass in time and in history. God decreed by his determined purpose and foreknowledge that Christ would die upon Calvary's cross for the redemption of his elect, fallen in Adam, redeemed in Christ by virtue of his cross work. Um, it also speaks to the reality, and we're, we, didn't, we didn't touch upon it, but some of the stuff of paragraph one that talks about God as first cause, and then the second causes, the contingency of second causes, uh, Acts 2.23 speaks to that, because God determines and purposes, according to his eternal decree, Christ to die upon the cross, the temporal means whereby that is brought out is partially wrapped up in these ungodly men using their lawless hands to crucify the Lord of glory. Uh, But getting back to this point, the work of Christ in history, you can turn with me as well to 1 Peter as we go to certain passages that speak to this blessed truth of the work of Christ being foreordained before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Notice the, the connection there between the decree of God decreed before the foundation of the world, and then the coming of Christ in time and in history, but was manifest in these last times for you. So the decree of God finding its termination in time and in history with the work of Jesus Christ in redemptive perfection. Also, you can make a note, uh, Revelation 13.8 speaks of the book of life and the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So, The means whereby Christ brings about the salvation of the elect to come to glory. First off, it's seen in the historical work of Jesus Christ, the mediator. Secondly, it's seen in the whole scheme of salvation in time. So Christ comes, he effects redemption upon the cross and his life, death, and resurrection. And then in time and in history, sinners are saved by virtue of that foundational decree of God 
uh, where in time and in history they would be brought forth from deadness to life. Uh, some, play, some things to consider there with regards to this language of the means thereunto. First off, we would want to talk about the Word of God coming to sinners. It's the, the proclamation of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God is that providential means whereby God's decree terminates in time and in history to bring forth sinners from deadness to life. You can think of Romans chapter 10, for example. Uh, how will they hear without uh, a preacher? And, you know, how will they be preached to without uh, that preacher being sent? And that sort of language. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then there's this language that Paul uh, gives regarding the necessity of the word of Christ in the salvation of sinners. How will they call upon him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear of that one unless they are preached to concerning that one from the very word of Christ or with respect to divine revelation? And so the preaching of the word of God simply is a means whereby sinners are brought from deadness to life. But it's not only the preaching of the word of God that is a means whereby they uh, are brought to glory, but also the Holy Spirit attending, working with that preaching of the word in that uh, effectual calling as, uh, as sinners, as the, the elect hear the gospel preached, the Spirit works with that word and by that sovereign power brings forth dead sinners to life. So the means are the preaching of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that effectual calling comes all of those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Faith and repentance justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of those blessed benefits that Christ won for us upon Calvary's cross in his life, death, and resurrection based upon the blessed eternal decree of God that flows from his free and unchangeable love. And we'll close very briefly with this, the purpose of the decree of salvation. Notice the purpose of the decree of salvation is seen in paragraph 3. There's, I want to say there's two purposes, but the first one we see is in paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for. So that's a, a word here respecting purpose. For the manifestation of His glory. So the decree of God, the end or goal of the decree of God is for the manifestation of the glory of God. It is also unto, this later clause, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then lastly, to the praise of His glorious justice. So the decree of God, we can say, according to the confession here, has a threefold purpose. The manifestation of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, and to the praise of His infinite and glorious justice. And then lastly, we want to uh, have the proper posture as Christians when we consider the doctrine of the divine decree. As, as Calvinists, as the Reformed, we're not to, to lift up our chins and noses and puff out our chests and somehow uh, boast in an inordinate way with respect to the, the high mystery of predestination and the decree of God, but it is to humble us before the unrivaled majesty and glory of God, understanding that it's not our will and power in the matter of the decree and salvation, but rather it's God's unrivaled majesty, sovereignty, and glory in that matter. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. 
And there's a, there's a reason for this, that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. Brethren, we can have assurance in Jesus Christ. We have assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the perfection of election, in the perfection of divine calling, in the perfection of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We can have that, uh, we can have that assurance of eternal election. And this closing clause is so important. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. That's the stuff of, of blessed worship. As we go into worship here in, in a half an hour, we should reflect on these things and we should have this Christian posture, entering in to the house of God with reverence and admiration. We're, we're not there for ourselves. We're there, but we're there for God, that we, that we might worship Him. He's serving us in His house, and we are to return with adoration, with reverence, and we are to have this posture of humility. And to see that in our diligent Christian walk, we have, walk, we have this blessed consolation in the God of the eternal decree, who is not contingent, uh, who is not um, constrained by His creation, who is not constrained by creatures, who does not owe creatures anything, and he is not dependent upon them, but rather that infinite, eternal, and glorious one who has decreed all things that come to pass and that has blessedly decreed the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's have that posture of humility as we go into worship and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time studying your word, studying doctrine. We pray that you would humble us, that you would give us that Christian posture, that spirit of humility as we go into worship. Help us, Lord, to revere you, to admire you, to worship you aright, reflecting upon your unrivaled majesty, your sovereignty, your dominion and power over all things, and the perfection of your uh, most holy and most wise decree. Uh, do help us, do help us to worship you, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.